Amen. Amen. Second Peter chapter three, beginning at verse eight this morning, as we continue our Sunday morning series in the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. While you're turning there, just a reminder, we'll be continuing our series in the Gospel of John on Tuesday nights for our Tuesday night refuel Bible study over in the cafeteria across the campus. And this week we'll be looking at Jesus cleaning out the temple. And what significance does that have to do for us today? So we're in this series in 2 Peter, encouraging us to spiritually grow. As I've said at the very beginning of this series, I don't think any book of the Bible encourages us to grow spiritually any more than the book of 2 Peter. It reminds us why we should grow, the benefits of spiritual growth, what happens to us when we don't grow as a Christian. And so there's a lot of incentive and instruction and inspiration and motivation. And then Peter gets to chapter 3 where he lays before us what God has promised to do in the future. The prophetic word. And he's already told us in chapter 1 that the prophetic word of God is very reliable and dependable. We can count on it. We can bank on it. And when God revealed to us through folks like Peter what he wanted to do, what his desire to do, what he would do in the future... It was not just for information. It was not just to sit up there in our head and go, okay, that's something we can add to our, to our library of knowledge, if you will. Anytime God has placed prophecy in the Bible, it is always to be for inspiration, to motivate us of how we live our life now. In other words, what we know God's going to do in the future should very much affect the way we live our lives here and now. And so that's what Peter is encouraging us to do. That's taking, again, our spiritual growth and our greater understanding of the Scriptures and bringing it down to a very practical level of how it affects our everyday life. And so last week, Peter started to talk about God's return. Christ is coming back. And we as the church have heard that for a couple thousand years. And he talks about the scoffers and the mockers who will continue to increase as we get closer to the return of Christ. Who say, you know, I've heard this whole thing about Jesus coming for a couple thousand years. And everything has stayed the same. And God's never going to come back. And even if there is a God, I just don't believe it. And obviously then, then the fact of Christ's return and of who he is doesn't affect their life. They live as if God doesn't exist and will never return. And Peter said, as Christians, we cannot get caught up in the scoffing and the mocking. We've got to keep focused on the promises of God and the fact that Jesus said he would return and he will. And therefore, we should live every day on earth as if it could be our last Jesus could return, the, the, the world could come, we could pass off into eternity and death at any moment, and therefore we need to live each day to the fullest. With that, he begins in verse 8 by saying, Now, dear friends, do not let this one thing escape your notice, that a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years are like a single day. 
I want to go back, though, to those first couple words in verse 8. Dear friends. Again, I said last week, this is something in chapter 3 that he repeats four times. In verse 1, he calls his readers, dear friends. In verse 14, dear friends. In verse 17, dear friends. It means those who are truly loved, valued, prized, precious. And one of the things that Peter is saying is not only are we valued and prized and precious from God's point of view, but that we should learn to value and prize and look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ as precious for many reasons. But one reason is this, that in the last days, as it gets harder and harder to live for Christ, as the days in which we live become more challenging to be a Christian, We truly need to come together and build relationships with each other and connect with each other because we can mutually encourage and strengthen each other. And and the Word of God always tells us as Christians that we are far stronger when we are together than we are isolated from each other. No matter how strong you may think you are as an individual... You and I are always stronger with others around us than we ever are apart from others. And so he's reminding us when he says, you are dear friends, that we need to come together and we need to do this together because it's going to help all of us out. Instead of feeling like we're out there on an island, isolated and apart from everyone else. And then he wants to talk a little bit about time. Because he understands what the scoffers are saying. Hey, you know, a couple thousand years, you guys talk about Jesus returning and nothing's changed in a couple thousand years. And of course, we debunked that, if you will, a little bit last week as well. But Peter wants this one thing not to escape his reader's notice. And those words speak about a critically important truth that Peter says, I never want it to remain hidden In other words, I want you to keep this critically important truth always front and center in your mind and in your thinking and in your perspective, how you look at God and how you look at life. And the phrase that he uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this, a single day is like a thousand years. Now notice he doesn't say a single day is a thousand years to God. That's not what he said. He said a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years are like a single day. What's he mean by that? He means this, that the point is not that time has no meaning to God. Time does have meaning to God. He created the world, in a sense, with time being involved. And one event will happen either before or after another, even throughout eternity. Even though God is an eternal being, time has meaning to him. But he is saying that God is so different from all that he created because he is eternal. That you and I, as human beings, cannot confine God to our time schedule, to our way of how quick or how long something should take. Because God always has higher purposes in mind for things than what you and I could ever 
be able to have insight into. And God works both ways. Sometimes God will speed up something that normally takes a long time, and God obviously can do it in a second. We saw this Tuesday night when we looked at the miracle that Jesus did of turning water into wine. Usually it takes a long time to develop good wine. And Jesus instantaneously made good wine in just a second. Because he doesn't need all the time that it normally takes. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them with age, if you will. He created the wine with age. He can instantaneously create something that in a sense is brand new created and yet have the appearance of years on it, if you will. But the reverse is also true. And this is the one we probably have more of a struggle with. And that is the things that we know God could do in a second. And yet he takes so long to do. And we go, God, I know that this could happen much faster and much quicker. You could just make it happen if you want to. Why is it taking so long? Because God has eternal purposes in mind. God is never in a hurry like we are. Because when God even looks at our life and looks at the universe, He's got eternity already figured in to everything. And he's not going to be rushed. And so Peter is saying to those Christians even who may be getting influenced by those who are saying, well, he hasn't come in a couple thousand years, so I I don't buy into it that, oh, but a couple thousand years? To God, that's like a couple days. And because God knows that everything's going to happen just the way he said it in the future, from God's perspective, it's like it's already happened anyway. It's not like there's a question of whether it's going to happen or not from God's perspective. So that's what we have to keep in mind. And then Peter goes on to say this in verse 9. Here's why God is delaying, if you will, and taking so long from our perspective to come back. He says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow concerning His promises. The word slow means to be sluggish. It means to lack energy or resolve. In other words, Peter's saying, it's not like God's up there going, well, maybe I should come back, maybe I shouldn't. It's not that at all, you see. It's not that God is being sluggish with regards to his promises. In fact, whether God made a promise a thousand years ago, or whether he made us a promise yesterday, God's promises are reliable and dependable, no matter when he makes them. And that's why in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds us as Christians, that's why we should view the promises of God as magnificent, as precious, as priceless promises. Why? Because again, they're absolutely dependable. They're absolutely sure. They're absolutely reliable. It doesn't matter when God promised it. It will happen just as God said because promises are only as good as the people who make them. And because God cannot lie, because God's character is above reproach, because everything God ever promised came true exactly like God said, then we can bank on it. We can be sure of it. We can build our lives on it. We can have such stability and and surety and security, even in an unstable world, because we live based on the promises of God. 
And so he goes on to say, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise about coming back as some regard slowness. And Peter's saying, here's the problem. Apart from divine influence, some human beings begin to reason. And their reason is faulty because it's apart from divine influence. Therefore, it leads to faulty conclusions. Like, there is no God or Jesus promised to come back. He never will. No, Peter goes on to say, here's what God is doing in the meantime. He is being patient toward you. The word patient here means long-suffering, but it also means this. It is the exhibiting great self-restraint in the face of provocation. That's what it means. Now think about that from God's perspective. Think about the self-restraint that God has. He's God. And he looks down on the world and all the human beings that he created and down through the last couple thousand years especially. We'll just stick with that from the time of Christ till now. How many human beings across the world said there is no God? Bible's not true. Jesus isn't God. Jesus will never come. And think about the self-restraint of God to go, all he would have to do is, I'll show you. I'll come back and I'll blow this world apart and I will judge and, and you, you want to see me? I'll show you. But see, God, God doesn't do that. God exhibits unbelievable self-restraint in the face of people who deny that he even exists. That all he would have to do is just come back, set the record straight, and there you go. And he will one day. But now he's being patient. When I thought of that, can I just tell you a little bit aside from the primary thrust of the message? I thought to myself, how much more self-restraint does God need to build into my life? Because I'm just a mere human being. I'm not even God. And yet many times, I don't hold back from saying something or doing something because somehow, you know, somebody upset me or somebody, you know, ticked me off or, or somebody didn't do... And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what does God do every day with millions of people who blow Him off and live as if He doesn't exist and He just holds back from coming? And here's why. Because Peter says He has no desire that anyone should perish but that all should come to repentance. The reason why God holds back is because he's giving a few more being, uh, a few more human beings time to get things right and to come to him and to humble themselves and get their lives right through him. That's why he's holding back. See, from God's perspective, he has no desire to judge people. He created them. In fact, the Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None at all. But here's something we do need to know. Even though that's God's desire, God determined long ago, before he created man, 
that even though his desire would be that everyone that he created would come to know him in a personal way and have a relationship with him, that it was more important for them to have a free will and to have a choice of whether they come to him or not. So even though his desired will is that no one would ever perish apart from him and suffer ruin and loss. And let me just stop there for a minute and define that. When the Bible says those who don't know Christ will end up perishing, it literally means to suffer loss and ruin. And what the Bible is simply saying is this, for those who live their whole earthly life as if God doesn't exist and then find out one day that he does exist and that there is a heaven and that there is an eternity out there, that everything that they lived for, everything that they, because they lived as if this was all there is. There is no eternity. There is no heaven. There is no God. They're going to suffer the loss of everything. Because they banked on the fact that God wasn't real. There is no heaven, there is no eternity. That's what it means to perish. That that everything that makes life and living and eternity worthwhile is gone. That's what it means to perish. And God is holding back from coming back, maybe even one more day, so that some other human being that He created will come To say, Jesus, I need you. I don't want to live one more day without you in my life. That everything that I've lived for has not fulfilled or satisfied me at all. And I've come to realize through your spirit working on me and through your word that you're all that really matters. And maybe that one person is even here at the Oasis today. Maybe there's someone here That God is giving you one more day before you pass into eternity or before He comes back to get things right and to make peace with God. Do you have peace with God today, my friend? You can never experience the peace of God until you and I make peace with God. And that only comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. The only way we can have peace with God is when we invite Jesus Christ into our life to be our personal Savior. To acknowledge that what He did on the cross was to take my place as my substitute. That that was my punishment, my judgment that was meted out for Him, that was meant for me. And as a human being, God gives me the choice. I can either accept what Jesus did for me and let Him take the judgment and punishment and wrath of God for me, or I can choose to take it myself by spending an eternity separated from, again, God and all that's worthwhile. The choice is up to me. And God never wanted those that He created to be forced to love Him. What kind of love is that? God never wanted to make us robots to where we had to do what His desires were. And that's why even though He desires everyone He ever created to know Him and to know how much He loves them and that He has a plan and purpose for their life, He will never violate a human being's free will. 
Because God determined that it was more important for people to have the choice of whether we want God in our life or whether we choose to live our lives as if he doesn't exist. So the next time, even you as a Christian begin to think, why isn't God coming back yet? Why hasn't he returned? Maybe the reason is because maybe he's giving you or a family member or a friend another opportunity to come to know him before he comes. My goodness, what a merciful, compassionate, gracious God that is. Because here's what Peter does say, verse 10. But don't misunderstand that just because God is delaying for maybe some people to get their lives right, the day of the Lord will come. And the day of the Lord in the Bible is not a single 24-hour day. If you study the prophets in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord described the time when God would intervene in an unprecedented way in human history. I mean, he's intervened. Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, we talked about that, the birth of Jesus, all that. But God is going to intervene in an unprecedented way, and it's going to start with the rapture of the church, the next event on God's prophetic calendar. And then comes the seven-year tribulation, At the end of that, the battle of Armageddon, which leads into the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And after that, the events that Peter is about to describe. See, Peter, in a sense, is sandwiching. He's condensing all the time between the rapture of the church, sort of the first event that triggers the day of the Lord, and the last event that triggers it before we enter into the eternal state where God creates a new heavens and new earth after he destroys the present heaven and earth. So he says, the day of Lord, the Lord will come. And notice he says it's going to come like a thief. That is a, a truth that is repeated throughout Scripture. Jesus even says to Christians, stay alert, stay awake, watch and pray Because when I come, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come unexpectedly. And as Peter even said last week, many Christians even are going to be living such a lethargic, complacent life. Not engaged, not on the ball spiritually like we should be. And Peter says, make no mistake. The day of the Lord's going to come. It's going to come like a thief. It's going to catch many people, including many Christians, off guard. And then Peter again, sandwiching all the events of the day of the Lord from the rapture to what Peter's about to describe, says this. When it comes, eventually, the heavens will disappear. They will cease to exist. And they will cease to exist with a horrific noise. And then he says, the celestial bodies. This this words or these words speak about basic elements that literally make up the universe and hold it together. So Peter here isn't talking about the stars and the planets. He's literally talking about the atoms and the molecules that hold everything together. And notice what Peter says. He says, these will melt away in a blaze. The word melt here means to be set free, to be loosed. So what Peter is literally describing is all the elements 
elements that God uses to hold the universe together, He's going to let loose. And everything is just going to implode. See, the Bible teaches us the one that sustains the universe together, the one that holds everything together, is Jesus Christ. And so if your life is in Christ... You don't have any worries. You don't have any anxiety, no matter what the world's doing, because you know the world is in the hands of Jesus. The universe is in his hand. And he's what holds you together, and he's what holds this universe together. And one day, Peter says, he's going to let this present universe go. One of the reasons why he's going to destroy the present heaven and earth is because it's been scarred and tainted by sin. You see, this whole universe is under the curse, not not just Adam and Eve and the descendants of Adam and Eve. Paul says in Romans 8, the whole universe is under the curse of sin. It is groaning. That's why we have such an increased number of natural disasters and ups and downs in our weather and all of that, even in our lifetime. It's because the universe is groaning. And and God is going to wipe it away. And here's what he says. Not only will it melt away in a blaze, but the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. The words laid bare in the original means seen for what it really is. In other words, what Peter is saying is, all those individuals who banked on the fact that this life on earth was all there was. There is no God. There is no eternity. There's nothing after death. All they do when I die is they lay my body in the ground and that's it. He said, that's all going to be laid bare. And everything that they live for, all the stuff they put their money into, Peter says, it's going to be gone. There's not going to be anything to show for all the stuff that they thought life was about. Because for them, it was pretty much a material thing, a temporal thing. It was all about what they could get their hands on now. Not laying up treasure in heaven like Jesus said. And that's all going to be obviously laid bare at that time. Those who live for the here and now, they got nothing to show for it. And so he says to Christians... Since all these things are to melt away or cease to exist in this manner, what sort of people must we be? Peter here is not asking a question. It's an exclamation in the Greek language. He's saying, if if everything that we see around us is going to cease to exist one day, he's saying to Christians, then what sort of people must we be? In other words, another way to look at it is this. Does it make a difference to us every day how we live our life and what our priorities and what our decisions and choices are? If you and I go out now and and are very intentional about this, I want you to think about doing this. This week, as you drive around, as you go to work, as you go to school, whatever you do, everywhere you look, Not people now. We're going to get to that. Not people. But everything that you see, no matter how far the eye can see, you know one day, that's not going to be there. It's gone. 
How does that make a difference in the way you live every day? The choices, decisions, the priorities. Every house, every highway, every mountain, everything gone. Nothing of this earth as we know it is left. How does that change the way you live? See, Peter again says prophecy, what we know God is going to do in the future shouldn't just be something that sits up there in our heads and spins around. It should be something that affects the priorities and decisions and choices of our life here and now. Which is why he goes on to say to Christians, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness. Those are words that speak of consecration and devotion. And those concepts are totally misunderstood by many Christians today. Because if you were to ask most Christians, are you a dedicated, consecrated Christian? I think most Christians would give you this response, Yes, I am. And here's why. And they would begin to list all these actions and good deeds and good works that they do to make themselves consecrated and devoted. They would say things like, I'm a consecrated, devoted Christian because I go to church. I'm consecrated and devoted because I read my Bible every day and I pray. And when I get the opportunity, I tell people about Jesus and I, I give my offering to the church and I serve and I, I, I do this Bible study and I take this class and they'll go into all these lists of wonderful works. And can I remind you that Jesus even says to one on the day of judgment who says to him, Jesus, I've done many wonderful works in your name. Jesus will look at them and say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Now, I'm not against works. But that's not what it means to be consecrated or devoted. See, properly speaking, from God's perspective, all he wants is us to be consecrated and devoted. The works, the deeds, the wonderful works, the service, the ministry, all that will flow out of my consecration and devotion. We get caught up into the good works. You know, we as Christians might not believe at this point that, that good works save me. But somehow we still get caught up into good works somehow sanctify me. No. No. God is looking for consecrated, devoted believers. And what's it mean, pastor, to be consecrated? What does this language mean? I'll give you a very simple, short definition. Consecration and devotion to God from God's perspective is when we dethrone ourselves and we enthrone Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what it means. That when we put Jesus as the lead of our life, that He is the Lord, that He calls the shots, that He decides that He's on the throne of my life and I'm not. That's what it means to be consecrated and devoted. And that's the language Peter's using. He's saying if we truly believe that what God promised is going to happen one day, that everything we see on this earth is gone, shouldn't it lead to a consecrated, devoted life? Stop wasting our time with 
half-hearted commitment to God and get our spiritual life as the priority and our spiritual growth as the priority of our life and stop fooling around and playing church and playing games with God? Peter says that's the way it should be. Then he goes on to say, while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Peter says it should be in our hearts as consecrated, devoted believers to be looking forward to, to earnestly desire and long for the day of God when God is vindicated on this earth. And when God's ways are vindicated on this earth. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? When he said believers shouldn't Pray according to this model. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly what Peter is saying. That's what we should be looking forward to. And that's only going to come about when God supernaturally intervenes. The change that God wants to make on this earth isn't coming in and doing a little redecorating. In fact, can I share this with you? One of the great things I remember that C.S. Lewis said about his own salvation. When C.S. Lewis became a Christian, C.S. Lewis said a few years after, he said, when I became a Christian, I thought God was going to come into my life and maybe put up a little wallpaper and hang a few pictures. He said, God came into my life and started knocking out walls and adding rooms. Because that's the way God is. And that's what God's going to do here. He isn't just going to come in and just, you know, I'm going to change a few things. No. Everything as we know it on this earth and on this universe that we see, gone. Gone. The moon, all the planets, everything in our solar system, everything outside of our solar system, gone. It will cease to exist. And if we left it there, we'd go, oh, gee, God, yikes. Oh, the best is yet to come. Hang in there with me for just a few more minutes. Because notice what he goes on to say. Because of this day, the heavens will be burned up. And dissolved, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But don't miss verse 13. But according to his promise, there again, his sure, reliable, certain, dependable promise. And from God's perspective, it's as if it's already happened. Because it's God, he's going to do it. We are waiting. We are directing our minds for a new heaven and a new earth. Wow. By the way, the word new there means unprecedented in kind and quality. You see, God isn't just going to take away what we know as far as this sin-scarred, sin-stained, broken universe that we live in. No. God is so awesome. God is so good to us. God is so cool that he's going to go, boom, here's a new universe to spend eternity in. That's the kind of God we have. And there's not going to be any curse on that universe. And can I just say, as a a short aside, 
It amazes me when Christians even go, what are we going to do for all of eternity? I'm like, do you realize God is going to create a whole new universe for us? And unlike, you know, maybe envying the superheroes that we see uh, in the movies and stuff, oh, I wish I could fly and I wish I could go to other planets and whatever. I'm telling you, if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, you'll be able to fly around all over the universe. And sorry, I'm going to be a little selfish here. You'll be able to eat all the brownies you want to. Because the food and the drink that God creates for us in His kingdom and in eternity is going to make the food, even the good food and the good drink we have here, it's going to make it taste like that. Because that's the way God is. That's the kind of God we have. He's going to create for us a new heaven and a new earth. And here's the thing. He does it for us. Yes, He does it for His glory, but He does it for us. God existed long before in eternity without a universe. He doesn't need a universe to exist. He is the self-existent one. He needs no one or nothing else beside Himself to exist. The reason why God creates this wonderful universe for us one day is because for, it's for us to enjoy and to spend eternity with Him in. That's why He does it. Because He loves us enough that He doesn't want us to spend eternity in a broken world. He wants to make a brand new world that's not broken for us to spend eternity in. Oh, man. (laughs) And I'm going to close with this. This may be the most important thing that Peter says. That this new universe that God's going to create is a place in which righteousness truly resides. The word righteousness here means as things ought to be. As things, as God created them to be. As God intended for them to be. And the word reside means it's permanent. It will never go away. So when this eternity comes, that eternal state comes, when God wipes everything out once and for all that's been stained and scarred by sin and creates a new universe, the universe that He wants us to enjoy and live in with Him for all of eternity, we're going to be able to just go, this This is the way it was supposed to be. And this is the hope that we have based on the promise of God. See, as Christians, we don't have to get caught up in, oh my goodness, this world and it's so messed up and nobody knows what they're doing and there's no leadership in the world anymore. The world is just gone. Yeah. But we've got a promise that one day God's going to say, enough! I'm coming to take over! And I'm coming to make things right. And they will be right forever after I come. And you and I get to enjoy the benefit of all that. We get to sit under our palm tree, eating our brownies, 
and talking to whoever we want to and worshiping God and just going, God, you are so good to me that I get to enjoy this and it never ends. Wow, God, you are amazing. Folks, Peter didn't write this to us so that we would just know what God's going to do one day. Peter wrote this to us so that it would change our lives here and now. Will you let the Word of God change your life? Let's pray. God, all that you do for us, all that you've done for us, is such a demonstration of your character in nature. How much you love us. How much you want for us and desire for us is beyond our comprehension and imagination. God, you never take away something without giving us something better. We even see that in our own lives. There may be someone even here this morning who's never come to a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And maybe they're sitting there right now sort of struggling with, do I, do, I, do I accept Christ as my Savior? Do I believe in Him? Or do I keep trying to live my life on my own and keep, keep making my own decisions? Keep living without God. And one of the reasons that, that you may be struggling is because you just are listening to other voices and especially the voice of the devil himself in your mind right now who says, if you just surrender to God, it's not going to be better. And you need to hear the truth of God break through all of those voices and all those lies. And you need to hear God say to you, if you turn your life over to me, it will be better than you could ever imagine. Because God always has our best interest at heart. And His love will always replace what we are getting rid of in our life for something much better. And we even see that here in this passage of Scripture where one day God is going to totally destroy the universe as we know it. No more moon. No more Saturn and Jupiter. Venus, Mars. No more Earth. All gone. All the universe outside of that, all gone. But God in a moment creates a new universe. Unprecedented in its quality and its kind over anything we could imagine on this earth. And He gives it to us as a gift because He loves us that much. That even though it would be enough if we just had God and had nothing else, that God gives it to us anyway. Because that's the kind of God you are. God, I pray today that as we focus our lives on You and we determine in our minds that we want to be consecrated, devoted Christians who truly put Christ first in our lives, who stop playing games and playing church and we truly, once and for all, dethrone ourselves and get ourselves off the throne of our life and put You, Jesus, on the throne of our life. Lord, may it be so. 
to your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.